Welcome to the dark forest. Jackie and her pals will never bore us. Shameless confessions about our obsession will make us laugh and smile. So let's explore the dark forest and dark out for a it's Jackie Cation. Welcome to the Dork Forest. You know the websites, JackieCation.com, DorkForest.com, TheDorkForest.com. Oh, I bought FamilyPetAncestry.com, too, because I wrote a joke about it. It made me laugh. So if you go to FamilyPetAncestry.com, it really brings you to JackieCation.com. Uh, you, let's see, there's a million things you can do uh, about the show. The show, of course, streaming on those websites, and then also on iTunes and probably Stitcher. Because I think they just take it and then repurpose it. I don't get those numbers. I'm sure uh, a million people are listening on Stitcher, and I'll never know. And that's fine. I don't care. Allthingscomedy.com is my podcast umbrella hosty kind of people. Al Madrigal, Bill Burr, Tom Papa, Aaron Foley, Baron Vaughn, bunch of people that are Burt Kreischer. There's a lot of com- there's a lot of pods there if you're looking for pods. If you want to talk to other rangers of the Dork Forest, that is the Ranger page on Facebook. You can follow me, Jackie Cation, on Twitter. And the show also has a Twitter account, but that's mostly just the Periscope account because I didn't know what I was doing with Periscope. And I'm doing very little, very little. But at Jackie Cation is Twitter and Instagram at, I think it's TDF Podcast. I don't know what it is for the Periscope account. And then on the Libsyn page, there's always a phone bonus. It's if you get the app, you get the phone bonus automatically, and it used to, you have to, you'd have to have the app, but now Libsyn just puts it up there and has for 150 episodes. <laughs> so if you want to listen to Andy Ashcraft and myself discuss the show, um, there's a little phone bonus, like two or three minutes of just me and him talking about what the show's going to be like, and you can go to tdf.libsyn.com, I think it is. Okay, the credits, for God's sake, the people who put it together. Patrick Brady's going to fix this audio. Thank you. Uh, Mike Rickberg composed and sang that intro song that you just heard. He will sing his words to the Mexican hat dance at the end of the program. And Vilmos uh, redoes my website. Speaking of the website, he is redoing my website, um, the merch page in particular. So get in now because I think soon all the prices are going to go up on the T-shirts. Not on the CDs, I don't think, or the DVD. But you can buy all kinds of stuff for the Dork Forest and for my stand-up on JackieCation.com at the store. But postage went up a whole bunch, and they're all union-made, U.S.-made T-shirts. So they're heavier than normal. I don't know. So it's everything's going to be 30 bucks. That includes the postage, and I think it's 35 if you're ordering internationally. Hello, England. Hello, Australia. Hello, Germany and Thailand and Japan. What else? The donate button. For the love of God, donate. I don't have any work. I forgot to book work, and then it's too late to book work. So I don't have any work. So if you enjoy the show and you have been donating, I totally appreciate it. But if you haven't donated, now's the time. Now's the time to get in. Get in on the on the, on the the donating. Feel free to throw me some money because it would be great. And if you can't, and if you can't afford uh, merch or the donation button, you can always use the Amazon button. The Amazon banner on JackieCation.com just goes right to Amazon and then you just order normal from Amazon and then they, there's some sort of associate program that uh, helps out the show. Other than that, I'm doing a lot of stand-up, a lot of stand-up here in uh, Los Angeles and then this week I'm uh, doing a weird casino outside of Ashland, Wisconsin because that's how little work I have. 
I was like, sure, I'll spend all of my money on airfare and renting a car and drive to an Indian casino 15 minutes uh, from Lake Superior uh, to make a couple hundred bucks. Let's do it. So feel free to donate, I guess is what I'm saying. But this is an amazing episode because it's about to start. Hey, it's Jackie Cation. I'm in one of those rooms in Minneapolis at the town suites doing dork forests because that's what's happening. I'm featuring this week at Acme. Uh, it is in the middle of July sometime, and I'm here sitting with the other half of the vice presidential duo, Matthew Sachs. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled. It was awesome. super fun. It was Jason Klom was so funny about the whole <laughs> thing because he kept saying your name, and I was like, fine, let's get Matt on. Let's do that. And he's yeah. like, you should totally have Matt on. You're going to Minneapolis, right? So here we are. Yeah, now, perfect timing. Yes. So Matthew Sachs, you are on Twitter yes. at VP Matt Sachs, S-A-X-E. Uh, and you have a theater company here in Minneapolis yes. called Shadow Horse Theater. That's right. Shadowhorsetheater.com. Links to all the Facebook groups that you're part of and all the improv troops and yep. the theater itself and all yep. this stuff and their Twitter feed and all that. Yes. So people can go check that out. Now, I have to say I'm fascinated about vice presidents only because I don't know anything about them. Sure. No one does. So that you're not alone. <laughs> right. Uh, I think I told Jason this is that my brother Russ once memorized all of the Supreme Court justices. Oh my God. For no reason. Not, all of them, not just like the, not just the chief justice, but all of them? Through history. Oh my God. Like every court he wanted wow. to know. And I was like, you know what? Now that I say that out loud, I wonder if it were all the secretaries of state. <laughs> I think it was the, which would have been easier since there's only that one. That would be at a little time. easier, yeah. Yeah, because there's not a dozen people involved. No. Uh, every 20 years. Yeah, every, God, all those but, courts with all those rotating, I mean, like yeah. judges and everything. I wonder how many, I need, alright, putting it out there, you guys, I need a Supreme Court. I did have, uh, actually from Minneapolis, Clee Wiggins, Wigan, no? Whatever. <laughs> uh, was on talking about the Supreme Court, and I didn't have the right questions. Sometimes <laughs> I don't have the right questions about the dorkdom. And, uh, so it I'm happens. a huge fan when someone just goes in some direction. Sure. So, Let's go Minnesota vice president yeah. first. Well, th- I mean, you're in a good place for it, and that's a good state. Uh, Minnesota has had two very powerful and influential vice presidents. Are they the only presidents, vice presidents that we've that have, from Minnesota? From yes. Minnesota, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're Hubert Humphrey. Okay, who was he vice president for? He was vice president under Lyndon Johnson. That's right. Okay. Uh, after Johnson uh, vaguely remember ran that. in yeah, after when Johnson ran in '64, you know, mm-hmm. he didn't have a vice president for the first. Uh, like nine months of his presidency after the Kennedy assassination. Oh, right. So there was no VP at that time. And so our, then he chose Humphrey as his running mate. And that's right. It's an appointed position, right? Uh, well, it's, um. And then confirmed? It's appointed. It, 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 it can be like, you know, like in the case of like when Nixon's vice president Spiro Agnew resigned. Yeah. You know, he submitted Gerald Ford. He nominated him and he had to be, uh, you know, approved by the Senate and everything. Right. Um, so, but in this case in 64, since Johnson was the sitting president, you know, he had to choose a running mate to run with him in 64. Oh, okay. And he chose Humphrey who had been his, uh, kind of, uh, when, when LBJ ran the Senate pretty much for like 20 years. Yeah. Um, uh, Humphrey was like his second in command. Like he was who he used to like do lots of, of his legwork and everything. Oh, okay. So, so they were very, they came in together in 48 okay. in the Senate and they worked together, uh, all that time. And, um, and Humphrey's Humphrey, from Minnesota. Humphrey's from here. He had been mayor of Minneapolis. 
Oh, wow. And yeah, he'd been one of the greatest mayors in Minneapolis history. He'd been elected mayor when he was about 36, 37 years old. He was a young mayor. During the Depression? Or? Yeah. Uh, yeah, he helped stamp out some of the organized crime that was here, like the gangsters in St. Paul and bootlegging and stuff. Okay. Uh, he'd been a prosecutor, and then he was mayor of Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And then he'd been selected by the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, to speak at the 48 convention uh, with Truman, where everyone okay. thought Truman was going to get stomped by Thomas Dewey. Right. And... Uh, uh, Humphrey gave a very powerful uh, pro-civil rights speech oh. that made the Mississippi and Alabama delegates and other southern delegates walk out. And it wow. created the schism that led to Strom Thurmond getting the Dixiecrat nomination and led to there being four candidates oh, wow. in the 48 con- election, which is one of the most fascinating and interesting elections in presidential history because it had Truman as the Democrat and sitting president. Right. Who was the accidental president after, you know, uh, uh FDR's FDR. death. Yep. Then at Dewey was the establishment Republican candidate. Okay. And he'd lost to FDR back in, uh, 44. Okay. And then you had Strom Thurmond, the Southern Dixiecrat candidate. Okay. For segregationists. Right. And then you had a former vice president, Henry Wallace, as the progressive communist candidate. That's right. Who was and he'd been was FDR's, FDR's VP, VP before Truman? Before Truman, and I remember that just from the Roosevelt uh, documentary. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> the Ken Burns thing. Right. So so Humphrey gave uh, and he and he they gave an electrifying out. speech. Yeah, about saying that the Democratic Party was 137 years too far behind civil rights. Okay. It was time to advance civil rights now in 48. Yeah. And the Dixiecrats, the Southern Democrats later becoming the Dixiecrats, they just stormed out. And wow. some Southern like delegate said, can you imagine the damn fool people in Minnesota sending that damn idiot to represent them here? Wow. I mean, they were furious about it. Yeah, a lot of, cur- there yeah. wasn't a lot of cursing going on in quotes. No. So that- but he thought, he called him a damn fool, but, yeah. but Humphrey was right. In endorsing it because because he worked so hard with himself and others, uh, northern mayors of cities like Chicago and Cleveland and everything, they rallied the black vote in those right. states, and that vote helped get Truman elected. Okay, in right. the biggest upset in presidential uh, election right, history, the, and that's that's the only thing I really remember from yeah. that election. So that that's fascinating. Yeah, and then Truman was that in his first elected. And his only elected. That was his uh, only term that he went on his own. Yeah, right. And that's when he desegregated the army. Right? And yeah. And then that led to the desegregation of the army. That's right. The armed forces. And then so. Uh, so that's Humphrey. And yeah. so Humphrey was his president, his vice president. Uh, Humphrey, just that one. Humphrey was vice president. No, for LBJ. Oh, for LBJ. Sorry about that. No. Yeah. Uh, Truman's vice president was different. A guy named Alvin Barkley from Kentucky. <laughs> My apologies. Yeah. Don't worry. Don't worry. But <laughs> Humphrey, but Humphrey made a big splash in 48. OK. He'd been a very progressive and popular mayor of Minneapolis and he's Probably, uh, with all due respect to our last mayor, R.T. Ryback, who's a nice guy who I've met a few times. Right. Uh, Humphrey's probably the greatest mayor in Minneapolis history. Okay. And then he was elected to the Senate, and he came in with LBJ, and they became friends in the Senate, and they pushed together and pushed through a lot of powerful legislation. Mm-hmm. So when LBJ, you know, didn't appoint a vice president for, to finish out uh, Kennedy's term after the Kennedy assassination, he needed a vice presidential candidate. And a running mate, A running mate. Right? Yeah, he needed okay. a running mate. And um, pretty much everyone thought Humphrey was going to get it because he'd been very close with Johnson in the Senate. But Johnson being like the kind of, you know, major league dick that he was, he kind of teased about it. You know, he like – Oh, he's kind of jerking him around Oh, he jerked him around a lot. 
he jerked him around a lot. And you know, the presidential uh, episode with Brian Kiley, I found out that LBJ uh, was supposedely very well endowed. He was. And uh, <laughs> and would would sit around without any clothes on. Oh, yeah. Just so that other guys would see how big his oh, dick yeah. he, was. He'd, he'd do that. He'd like sit on the toilet, you know, taking a dump right. with his dick hanging out and talk and, to make make, make his, people have conversations with them about wow. policy in the toilet. He'd get out of the shower every morning, LBJ. I'll do this really quick. He'd get out of the, he'd get out of the shower, you know, and look down at his dick and say like, all right, Jumbo, who are we going to fuck today? Oh, Jesus. Well, yeah. he just uh, sounds like a charmer. He was a charming man. Yeah. Yes. So you can imagine how he treated like little Hubert Humphrey, who was a Minnesota, you right. know, Minnesota nice from, guy, Minnesota nice guy. And also, you know, typical like, Doe-faced liberal, you know, as he was called the Happy Warrior. That was his nickname. Right. But, but he probably had that sort of Norwegian kind of... Yeah, he was a Norwegian-Swedish, you know, nice little dude. man. You yeah. Know, nice little guy. Like, he was like 5'6", five, 5'7". Five, right. Compared to LBJ, he was like 6'3". And right. Towering and powerful. Uh, so he intimidated Humphrey a lot. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you know, it was pretty much... Everyone knew that Humphrey was going to be the VP candidate. Okay. But... LBJ danced around it a little. He wouldn't say who he was going to do. And then he made Humphrey – he summoned Humphrey from like the Senate to the White House. Yeah. And made him sit out in a car for like I think like four or six hours or something waiting for him. And wow. then Humphrey fell asleep in the car mm -hmm. after it like circled Washington, like taking him on a tour of Washington. He'd lived in Washington by that point for like 15, 16 years. Mm -hmm. So that was all just bullshit for him. Right. And then it sits there in the White House parking lot and he's waiting and waiting and he falls asleep. Yeah. And Johnson finally walks out and knocks on the window and wakes him up and scares him half to death. Oh. And then says, if you didn't know you were going to be my VP candidate before this, you're too damn dumb to have the job. Yeah. And – Great. That's how he treated so, him, basically. That's right, right. It's just like he he makes him do all these things yeah. and then makes fun of him for right for taking it. Right, and then yeah. he like you know he thought Humphrey talked too much, like he'd limit his speeches. He'd say you have this much time and that's it, and he'd tap at his watch like oh, he'd light him. See it. Yeah. He'd be like, uh, wrap it up. Wrap it up. He'd all wrap right. him up, and then um, Humphrey gave an electrifying speech at the '64 convention, okay. calling out Barry Goldwater about like all this stuff. Like he'd say stuff like, you know, the rest of the Congress supported the Civil Rights Act, yeah. but where was Senator Goldwater? Yeah, and like. People caught on to it, and so the audience would chant back at him when he'd get to that, where was Senator Goldwater? Oh, my God. It was yeah. a really great speech, yeah. and he just had them in the palm of his hand. Yeah. And it electrified the whole convention. It ripped apart Barry Goldwater, mm -hmm. and they won in a landslide, and that's what they – you know, the 64 election is the landslide Lyndon oh, election the where they – I think they won every state except like two or something like that. Right. Like Arizona, Barry Goldwater State, and some other conservative state. Right. And they ripped him apart. Yeah. And so uh, Humphrey became VP, and uh, in the Senate, he'd done a lot of great work. Like, he had been the guy who had come up with the concept and idea for the Peace Corps, which oh, really? Kennedy had created. Yeah. Um, he Which pushed... is a great way to invade a country peacefully. Yes. It's exactly. very nice. It's very they, subtle. They do, it's very subtle, but they yeah. do build bridges and schools. Yes. They do a lot of good stuff. The they, do, they really do. They really do. They really do. And it was, and Humphrey went into it with like totally, you know, altruistic goals. Right, right. Yeah. Totally. He, he thought he was, he right. very much the, I mean, I think he was very much one of these right. noblesse oh, yeah. kind of guys. Oh yeah. And then when it came to the Civil Rights Act, Johnson entrusted Humphrey to steer it through the Senate. Okay. And Humphrey is who really got the Civil Rights Act through the Senate. Okay. Johnson did a lot of stuff, obviously, with phone calls, and there was a lot yeah. of wheeling and dealing. But it was Humphrey who he entrusted to push the Civil Rights Act through the Senate. Yeah. And without Hubert H. Humphrey, who'd been, like I said, in 48 talking about civil rights. Yeah. 
there would have been no Civil Rights Act and it wouldn't have been gone through. That makes sense because yeah. uh, Johnson being such kind of a muscle guy and, and – uh, He needed Humphrey to do the do, finesse work. Right. And, and also and, to and do stuff that the president couldn't do. Yeah? yeah. Just kind of what, – what did he – like what, what, what kind of stuff do vice presidents do that presidents can't Well, this do? was when Humphrey was in the Senate. But okay. then like when he was VP, you know, you preside over the Senate and really you can't do anything right. except preside over the Senate. And break ties. And break ties if there's a tying vote. Yeah. But, you know – Basically, Humphrey was going to use uh, the pre- the vice presidency. He saw it as a way to get into the presidency, which yeah. he wanted for a long time. Of course. He almost was the nominee in 60 until the West Virginia um, uh, primaries where Kennedy upset him. Oh, okay. And, you know, that's where Tr- Harry Truman's joke about, like, you know, Kennedy, like, whose dads can who, – who other politicians' dads do you know can buy West Virginia? Because Humphrey should have won West Virginia, you know, a Protestant running in West Virginia against the Catholic. Yeah. And Humphrey was a national figure already. When Kennedy upset him there in 60, it's what really made him go, "Ah, I'm going to have to wait. Oh, wow. That's crazy talk. And then, so Johnson doesn't run again. No, he decides, you know, he makes that famous announcement in 68, like with the Vietnam, I will not run again. Yeah. So that's what gets Humphrey the nomination as the sitting vice president. Okay. But he still had to fight off RFK, and if RFK hadn't been assassinated, Humphrey might not have gotten the nomination. So he ran for president in 68. In 68, the Democratic candidates were the vice president, Hubert Humphrey, Robert F. Kennedy, and the other senator, uh, Humphrey's protege and former fellow senator from Minnesota, Eugene McCarthy. Oh, okay. And then RFK got assassinated, of course. Right. And so McCarthy picked, bowed out, and Humphrey yeah. is the vice president. You know, he had the most power and the most votes and the, and, and the most national presence. So he won the nomination at the horrible Democratic National Convention of 68, where the riots happened in Chicago and everything. And right. all the beatings by cops of hippies and protesters. And, right. And then oh, all that was mon- nightmare. Yeah. And, and all the Republicans were laughing at the 68 convention and enjoying watching the hippies get beat up, like Pat Buchanan said and everything. Yeah. It was horrible. The 68 yeah. convention, you know, was just one of the worst examples of american politics in history right there was it was all kinds of trouble back yeah. then it was i mean they they have a better use of the media now where yeah. they don't show it but then it was just a nightmare i mean dan rather getting punched in the face you know by a cop on the floor and everything oh, like I that i never saw that footage. something like that yeah i mean it was a nightmare the, yeah if you were like you know, the 68 convention, you know, it was the 40th anniversary of it back in 08. Yeah. And there were lots of articles and stuff about it. You know, people talked with people who were there, like Paul, like Gore Vidal and Pat Buchanan oh, yeah. watching it on TV and everything. It was awful. Yeah. And it embarrassed Humphrey so okay. bad. And, and Johnson wouldn't endorse him because Humphrey wanted to, you know, yeah. wheel back on the Vietnam stuff. Right. And, and Johnson felt like it was a, it was a slap and, to his Well, Johnson, face. yeah. And Johnson felt like it was a slap to his face. And the Democrats were so splintered. And Nixon used his Southern strategy and right. Nixon won, which was awful. Right. Because right. just, you know, five years later, Watergate and he's forced well, to resign and everything. Right. It was and so a horrible. Spiro Agnew resigned. Yes. Before. Before Nixon. Before Nixon. Yeah. Why? What was, I don't even, I mean, I was a child, but I, I right. don't remember this. The Agnew resignation was, had to do with bribes and stuff. Yeah, it's complicated. Like, you know, he was getting like 5% kickbacks from somebody or something like that. It was. Really? Yeah, it was. Yeah. But and I mean, it was Agnew, documented. Oh, yeah, it was documented. And, and Agnew resigned and he later claimed like he'd been forced to resign and he'd been threatened with like assassination and stuff like this. But he was just so full of shit. He was a horrible. Like the New York Times said, like, you know, flat out 
Spiro Agnew is not fit to be the second in line for the presidency of the United States. Because he's a mess. Oh, he was a mess. No, it yeah. was like some some like some writer said that like the the Nixon choosing Agnew was like when Caligula chose his horse to be consul. <laughs> Uh, that's a great line. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but it was awful. I mean, like Nixon beating Humphrey in 68 is one of the worst presidential tragedy elections to ever happen. Right. Cause Humphrey would have been amazing and would have spared, he would have wrapped up Vietnam shorter and faster, right. sparing thousands of lives. And he tens not, of thousands of ten, Vietnamese lives. Tens of thousands of Vietnamese lives, American lives. Yeah. Uh, you know, and he wouldn't have had a Watergate. Right. Right. He was squeaky clean. He, right. He would have, I think he would have been more like Herbert Hoover, where he would have been known as probably a guy that took the fall for Vietnam. Well, I mean, we'll never but he know. He would have done it right. Yeah, but, but he I would, think. I think he would have ended, he would have ended Vietnam much faster. Yes. And Nixon would have, he, he wouldn't have let it go to 72. He would have gotten it done like in his first year of the presidency, I think. You think? I honestly yeah, I do, because he really wanted to wrap it up. He really hated Vietnam. What did, what did he end up doing in life? What well, was his, what was his post? After he lost the 68 election, yeah. he kind of retired from politics a little bit and came back and he taught here in Minneapolis at McAllister College some. Okay. And then he got reelected to the Senate. Oh, okay. And so the he US had, Senate. yeah, he was, so he went back to the Senate and he served there and, uh, he got, I think it was cancer of the bladder. Oof. And he Wait, passed when? away like in 77 or something like that or 78. Oh, wow. So pretty quick. Yeah. It was a shame. It was a real tragedy. Right. Uh, but he was back in the Senate. He got elected to the Senate again after like, after leaving, you know, the vice presidency yeah. after the 68 election, um, he like, I think he took some it's, time off and then he got elected to the Senate and he served in the Senate. It's interesting to go back into that level of politics after, I mean, cause, you know, you think about like a, a someone who's become president, what is there to do after? That, right. Right? He'd done everything except become president. He'd been, you know, a right. mayor, a senator, a vice president. Did, he'd always dreamed of being president. It was very tragic. The only thing, right. Well, the, the only, I remember John Taft. John Taft? William Bob Taft. Taft. William Taft. William Howard Taft? Or William his Howard son, Bob, Taft. Senator Bob Taft? His, his, the, the president. William, William Howard, Howard Taft. Yeah. yeah. So he became Supreme Court. Yes, he's the only man who's ever was president of the United States and Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Right. Taft. Did any of them, uh, did, do we have any other presidents or vice presidents who went to the Supreme Court not to just become God, that's Chief a good Justice? question. Yeah. Um, I can't think of it all. I can't really hand. think off the top of my head. I'm sure, I, I think. It seems Possibly? like the only, it seems like but, the, the, the only thing that's left, really. Right. If you want, if you want to make, if you want to make policy, if you want to affect change after you've been president of the United States, it's all that's really yeah, left. Yeah, pretty you. much. You can, you, Chief Justice is the last thing. The only, only I mean, Taft has been both You pres- can't go back to the Senate. No. But that's, well, uh, you can, like John Quincy I mean, Adams. It's legal. Did. did you? Oh, well, John Quincy. That's early days, though. Yeah. I feel like it isn't a 20th century thing. It's not much of a 20th century thing. Yeah. No. No. I feel like it's, there's the John job Quincy got Adams, too big. after the election of 1826, I want to say, or something, mm-hmm. you know, he took some time off after he lost to Andrew Jackson, and then he went back and served in the Senate. Okay. Um, yeah, I think you want to regroup after yeah. you've lost the presidency. Yeah. Yeah. So what it's about, a tough thing. Yeah. So uh, what about Mondale? He's he's a vice president. Yeah. So that's here. what. So going into Humphrey, Mondale was his protege. Okay. And um, Mondale was chosen. Uh, he served in the Senate mm-hmm. un, with with also Hubert from Humphrey, also from Minnesota, uh, and tapped by Carter to be his VP nominee in right. the seventy six. And again, it was a kind of you know geographical balance because uh, Carter was a. Southern Democrat from right, Georgia, Georgia and uh, was a governor. Yeah. And so you add a northern senator with international experience to balance your ticket. That's right. So you have Mondale, yeah. who was heavily 
who'd been, you know, endorsed by Hubert Humphrey and other popular and prominent Democrats. Okay. And so that was a, it was a winning ticket in it and they, and, and they, they did win. Beat Ford. And so know. how long was Mondale in the Senate before he I want to say that. he'd had like at least three terms, two or okay. three terms. But so, maybe two – maybe like Senate terms are so long, six years. I think I want to say at least two terms, like he was in the middle of his second or third term. So middle 60s. Something – well, I think he was, he was like a, young, a relatively young, younger man yeah. those days. Like he was in his 50s. Like yeah. I want to say late 40s, early 50s when he was elected. They were a young ticket, Carter and Mondale. Yeah, it felt like the, it felt like the uh, a seriously young ticket. Yeah, they were when a I was young. A oh yeah, they were a young ticket. They were a young ticket in general for any election. Yeah. And um, yeah, Carter and Mondale. They, you know, they were. You know, it was time. It was a. There was a very great mood, and this is why Ford. Part of why Ford lost of sweeping the bastards out. You know, yes. after the scandal of Watergate. Yeah. And Ford being appointed and him pardoning Nixon. Yeah. The nation was just sick of that kind of politics. That's right. And was, who was Ford's Rockefeller? Rockefeller was his VP. Right. And then he dropped him for Bob Dole. Oh. And, and Ford later said it was the biggest political mistake he ever made losing Rockefeller. The hard right conservatives of the Republicans forced him to drop Rockefeller because he, they thought Rockefeller was too liberal. Oh, right, because he had – Because he was a New York, you know, he was a, he was New, a New York, York Republican. Republican. He was a very progressive Republican. Yeah. And he'd been a popular governor of New York. Yeah. And he'd done really well for himself. He was uh, – and he'd been appointed so – Ford chose him as his, his VP. running weight mate. He dropped Rockefeller for Bob Dole. For the for the 76 election. For the 76 election. Okay. I've and been, they lost. Yeah. And Ford later said it was the biggest political mistake he ever made. Wow. Because Rockefeller could have made a difference in getting a lot of votes. I think he could have, just because of the name recognition alone. The name recognition and his policies. He was a liberal, he was a more uh, liberal Republican. It balanced the ticket better, especially the way the nation felt after Watergate. Right. And after the Nixon pardon. Right, right. So losing Nelson Rockefeller... Who, you know, has re- entered the zeitgeist recently because of, uh, you know, the character on Mad Men working for him and mentioning him a lot oh, right. and everything. Right. Uh, a lot of people are like, like, Nelson Rockefeller, who's that? And, right. And, uh, he's become more popular recently because of all his name dropping, his name being dropped on Mad Men a right. lot. By, uh, <laughs> right. Because nobody remembers Henry, that there was Betty's a Rockefeller husband. that's ever been in that level of, of national politics, but yeah, I mean, I like there's senators from West Virginia, Rock- Nelson Rockefeller. Yeah. <laughs> well, he was, you know, first of all, obviously he was wildly wealthy. Right. He wasn't living check to check. No, no. Gig. He yeah. he funded Citizen Kane, Nelson Rockefeller. <laughs> he was that rich. He was, Nelson Rockefeller was so rich. How he, rich was he? <laughs> that yeah. he lived in a mansion of his own instead of the vice presidential mansion because his own mansion was nicer. Oh and he gosh. took and he and he donated his salary as vice president to charity. He oh, didn't wow. need it. He was so rich. It's like Leno. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you know Leno never touched any of his Tonight Show money. I didn't know that. Yeah, no. yeah. He 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 lived off of stand up money. Wow. And I had no which idea. is why he did corporates for two hundred fifty thousand dollars a pop, so that they could live quite well. Wow. And then his, he gave all of his uh, Tonight Show money to his wife to uh, to for philanthropy. I had no idea. Well, yeah. Rock, Rockefeller basically did the same thing. Like yeah. his salary as vice president was peanuts to him. Yeah. So he donated it to charity. He was like, whatever. Whatever. Yeah. And then after like, you know, he was dropped from the ticket, obviously he was pissed off and bitter about yeah. it. And I think he just like kind of retired from politics. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and then just- he famously died you know, under very mysterious circumstances. Like, oh, really? Yes. Uh, he was found, uh, he was found dead in his mansion. And when the police appeared on the scene, they noticed some inconsistencies and weird things like that his shoes were on the wrong feet as he was slumped in his chair. What? That a newspaper um, that he had supposedly been reading was like, 
I think like m- opened in a weird place or something, <laughs> or upside down or something <laughs> like, like that. Reading the comics, or there were some weird circumstances in Locked the, the room. scene. Locked yeah, room so they asked you know the some people about it. Yeah, and it turned out that uh, Rockefeller had been. Um, with his younger mistress and her oh, like, he was, in the like sack? he was in the sack. He died, I think probably mid coitus with right. his like 24 year old mistress. And she's Ed. and she called his aides, you know, right. And they came and rearranged the scene and covered it up. Oh my God. And the Rockefellers, of course, being so rich and powerful, you know, they covered, they did everything they could yeah, to yeah. cover it up for a while. Yeah. But it eventually leaked and everything. Right, wrong shoes. That's the worst assistant ever. Oh, they like, well, they scrambled, you know, because she called the assistants, then she called the police and the ambulances and everything. Right, and they were like, don't call Here's like the former vice president of the United States, and he's had a heart attack while he's fucking... Not his wife. Not his wife. Yes, yes. Big deal. Big deal. Big deal. Yeah. And so, like, it's pretty much... 95% sure that like he died mid-sex <laughs> with his like 20-something mistress. Wow. And then they rearranged all the death stuff like putting him in his chair and all find that out stuff. Where, like the thing is is that had to mess with her sex life oh, for the rest I'm sure. of her life. She's just like Well, she got a like I think he left her like about a half a million or some or 50,000 to a half a million dollars in his will. So I think she was okay. Right, right. She had dried her tears. But in her brand sex new life car. was probably. Yeah, well, that's the thing. You gotta. There's some sexual healing that has to go on yeah. after you. You, uh, you die. And he was. How old was he? When oh, he died? I think he and was in his seventies or something oh, he like was that. Older? He was much older than her. Yeah, Oof. no doubt about it. I have never needed money that bad. <laughs> I don't know what. I don't know what people's lives. Kids. Out there, Grammacation wants to tell you, keep it together. <laughs> anyway, so Mondale. So Mon- back to Mondale. <laughs> back yeah. to Mondale. Back to boring Mondale who didn't, who's never had sex with any <laughs> 20 year olds. Right, or never any. had sex at all. He maybe not, he, in, he might die mid-coitus. We're not sure yet because he's, he's still, still alive. alive. Yeah. yeah. But, um, so Mondale was, uh, Carter's VP. Right. And then, you know, uh, they, Did he give Stirring's uh, speeches in the? He was not exactly the most elect, if you've ever seen Walter Mondale speak, he's not the most electrifying speaker. He just speaker. seems to be a good egg. Yeah, he's just a regular nice guy for the most part, I thought. Yeah. Uh, but then he was, you know, and then he and Carter lost to Reagan in 80. Yeah. And then he, and then Mondale got the nomination in 84 and got stomped, got his got ass kicked. Handed to him as yeah. that. Yeah. He, he won, he lost Reagan. every state except here, Minnesota. Except Minnesota. He lost every state. He got his ass kicked. Right. And most, most younger people now know Mondale for getting his ass kicked in 84 and for all the references that they've dropped about him on like the Simpsons and Futurama. And right. Don't, yeah. Don't they have his head in a jar in Futurama? Uh, I, well, on I think that was true, but like on The Simpsons, you know, in the, I think it's the episode where Bart is going to be beaten by the Australians or something. Yeah. You know? Like the, the the ship that saves The Simpsons is the USS Walter Mondale, which is the Navy's laundry ship. <laughs> and yeah, it just feels like a slat. I mean, Mondale was a good guy, though, right? He was a good guy. No, Mondale, what is he doing now? Uh, that's a good question. Um, uh, Mondale was a good guy, and then you asked about, like, we talked about, like, how, what is, what do you do after you've been, like, vice president and nearly president? He had been ambassador to, J- to Japan. Oh, okay. And the Japanese just, like, worshipped him. Okay. And so he lives, he spends a lot of time here working at a law firm, uh, here in Minneapolis, like, okay. as a figurehead. Right, right. He doesn't really practice law very much. Right. And he goes to Japan sometimes in the winter. Like, he'll winter in Japan. Just doing cons, just signing uh, headshots. I have no idea. And, uh, <laughs> but they, like, treat, they were, like, the Japanese were very honored that, like, a former vice president of the United States and a, and all these things that he had held was appointed their ambassador. They were thrilled. Well, that's neat. So they treated him really nice. And then, um, so he lives there sometimes, he lives here sometimes, and we were supposed to interview him for Vice Presidents, the documentary. Oh, that's right. And then, 
Um, By the way, let me just tell yeah. people again that I am with uh, Matt Sachs, S-A-X-E, and uh, we're, we're talking vice presidents, and you're on the dork forest, and it's super fun. <laughs> but uh, vice presidents uh, being number two in the White House yes. is your documentary that yes. you're working on with Jason Klopp. Yes, and we were supposed to interview him for it here. Like I reached out to him, God, like – like in 2007, I reached out to him about okay. it and it took years to try and get, you know, through like, you know, his secretary and, and, you know, he'd be in Japan for times and he had medical issues. Okay. And finally he agreed to do like an interview with us. Okay. And, uh, you know, Jason and I put a fundraiser up on the vice president's blog and everything to raise money to help Jason fly out here so he could be here for it, obviously. Right. And I found a local crew from a film school. Okay. That was going to like do the shoot and their students would work on it as interns like for an experience of it. Like the instructor was like thrilled about it. He's like, gosh, yeah. this is going to be great for our students and everything yeah, yeah. like that. And they were, it was all going to be volunteers so we didn't have to pay for it and everything. Right, right. Because we'd use You're money. You're trying to put this together. Yeah, we're trying yeah. to put this together and we're scrambling on a shoestring budget. Right. And You, you are know, not Rockefellers. No, we are not <laughs> Rockefellers. Far, we're not even like – Fifth cousin Rockefeller. Right, you're right? not even Humphreys. We're not even Humphreys, <laughs> who was dirt poor too. Um, um, so we we scrambled to put this together, and both Jason and I bought Mondale's book that had come out recently, and we read it. Yep. It was very dry, boring reading, but you know, I wanted to be really prepared. Yeah, I worked really hard on preparing my questions and everything. I was like, this is going to be it. This mm-hmm. is going to a, a two hour interview with the former vice president of the United States and everything. This is going to be amazing. Right. So I think about like. A couple days before we were supposed to do the interview, I'm at my office uh, at this new job I'd just gotten, and I get a call. I check my voicemail, and, like, there's a message from the law office that he works for, like, uh, Mr. Mondale wants to speak with you. Okay. So I get my cell phone, and I go out to the, like, uh the parking lot behind right. the office <laughs> right. and I call the number yep. and I'm like, this is Matt Sachs. Uh, I was told to call to speak with Mr. Mondale and yeah. this woman says, hold for the vice president. And then I'm on the phone with him. Wow. Yeah. And then he starts peppering me with questions. He's like, oh, like what's it going to be like? What's this going to be like? Yeah. What is this? I'm looking at this and I don't, I don't, is Did this you a, say, what do you want it to be? Uh, well, that's, here's the thing. Like, I wish I'd said something almost like that, yeah. but I was trying to be super polite because like, yeah. obviously I'm nervous. Yeah. Like here I am behind like this, yeah. in this parking lot outside talking with the former vice president of the United States yeah. and democratic nominee for president of the United States. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to say anything that's going to be wrong or offensive. So I'm like, he said, first that thing he met Khrushchev. Yeah. Yeah. This, this anyway. guy is like <laughs> this. I mean, you yeah. know, amazing. So. I'm on the phone. So I say to him, like, well, Mr. Vice President, you know, uh, and then he says, like, I think he said, like, call me Fritz or something like that. Okay. And I'm like, okay. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm like, well, you know, he, he, he hung on the word. He'd seen, like, the word comedic in yeah. our, like, you know, all these letters and correspondence oh, that right. we sent. And then he's like, do you think, he says, like, do you think the Vice Presidency is funny? And I'm like, no, sir. No. This is going to be a serious interview. Like, when I interviewed Gore Vidal for the, our documentary, this is going to be a serious interview about, you know, what you think the role of the Vice Presidency is. Yeah. Your relationship and history with Hubert Humphrey, who was his mentor and everything. Right. And your experience in office as Vice President. And yeah. Your observations, he's like, yeah, but I'm seeing this word comedic and it's just, it bothers oh, it's me. freaking him out? Oh, it's freaking him out. And he's like, pep, like before I can get answers out, he's hitting me with another question. Yeah. Like he's, the lawyer prosecutor in him is out and he's yeah. like, bam, 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 hitting me. And I just can't answer his questions fast enough. Yeah. And then I scramble and I fluster and I go, you know, like I say like, well, you know, Mr. Vice President, some people have said that the vice presidency 
is an absurd office. And he's like, oh, you think the vice presidency is absurd? I'm like, no, sir, I don't think that. Yeah. I don't. People have said that. And this film is called comedic just because, you know, it's a Hollywood and you have to be able to sell it. You know, stupid studio executives yeah. want to hear comedy or drama. They don't want to hear like one, like a mix of it. Right. And he's like, uh, no, 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 no. And, oh. and I'm like, sir, you know, even in, I said something like the effect of, you know, sir, even in Ken Burns Civil War, there are moments of levity, there are right. moments of, you know, to, you know, of jokes and stuff, mm-hmm. just to, you know, funny anecdotes and things to, like, yeah. you know, ease up the tension. But this interview with you, I want to be serious. I okay. want it to be a serious examination of the vice presidency. You're just digging a hole. Just but digging he, and digging. Yeah, I'm trying to save myself, but I can I can feel it slipping away. He's gone. And yeah. then he hangs up on me mid-sentence. Yeah, you're done. And he wouldn't take my calls, and that was it. And, that and I had to it. call Jason and tell him, like, Jason, something horrible has happened. Yes. I had to call the crew and, like, tell Cancel them it wasn't. This was, like, Two day, the Jason was going to fly out. I think the next day I mean, from L.A. to I Minneapolis. I will say this about the job of vice president is that it lends itself to thinking that you're a failure, right? Or when, mock, or to be mocked when, when you are not. When you're not, no. The fact that you're <laughs> number two might, you know, I mean, I, I can see where a guy like Lyndon Johnson would be an asshole about it. Yeah, but he hated every, being vice president. But by the everyone way. else is like. That's amazing. Yeah. No, I mean, I th- I'm more Japanese, I guess, than Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> and so I forgot that Lyndon Johnson was a vice president. Oh, yeah. He was Kennedy's VP, but he hated it. Oh, that's right. I didn't forget that. I just uh, spaced that. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, for some – I think Jason talked about this. Like the vice presidency is what you make of it. Yeah. And Humphrey and uh, had used it as best he could. Mondale, when he was vice president – became a powerful part of the government. He elevated the vice presidency That's higher. right. Jason said that. That's that exactly was, right. Because previously there was no real position internationally no. as a vice president, but right. Mondale created that. Mondale is who elevated and made the vice presidency what it is uh, today. With the encouragement and and – of, of Jimmy Carter. Oh yeah, President Carter needed him to do this because like Carter was a governor from Georgia. He oh, had no right. experience in Washington. That's he had right. very tiny bits of international experience, barely any. Right. Mondale was an internationalist. Mm-hmm. He'd been trained by, you know, Humphrey. He'd been in the Senate. He dealt with foreign policy. Right. He's a very astute, wise foreign uh, policymaker and diplomat. Oof. And without Mondale, Mondale is who led, led, you know, the experience and international credence to the Carter Mondale ticket. Right. Cause and, Mondale into was into the job. And into the job. And so when they got elected, immediately Carter was like, I need you to like head up all these foreign departments. I need you to be my man on international diplomacy. Right. And Mondale made his own job basically. He's like, well, I'll do this and I'll do that and I'll do this and right. I'll do that. Okay. And it made it into a powerful vice presidency that Future vice presidents like Gore and Cheney and now uh, Vice President and Biden Bush? have followed. Okay. Bush not so much because Reagan kind of shut him out a little bit. Did but, he? Yeah, a little bit. Because you would have thought Reagan would have needed him. Oh, he needed him, but he didn't. He didn't want, use they, him correctly. He didn't. I don't think Reagan used Bush as much as he could have. Yeah. They had kind of an anti- antagonistic relationship, despite what you know the former President Bush would say. You know, he didn't like losing to Reagan in the in the Republican primaries. And well, I, I can't imagine. I mean, Ronald Reagan is to some extent just such a figure. Yeah. Uh, just a, a figurehead. Yeah. And he's become and a romanticized figure. He's been romanticized the by the right. So, yeah. And I uh I was there. Uh, <laughs> I was there. I might not be super young, you guys. And uh I hated him. Hated him with the power of the sun. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh he was a mess. Right. And 
But Bush, it was funny because I didn't like Bush either because he was the head of the CIA. Yes, he'd been head of the CIA. And I was like, but the fact that, that Reagan didn't use him correctly was one of the greatest things about their president. Yeah. Because he could have done, he did a great deal of damage, but he could have done a great deal more. Right. And then Bush came to power anyway. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, no sitting vice president who's ever declared themselves the candidate for president mm-hmm. for their party has lost. If you're VP and you decide to run for president out and out mm-hmm. and you declare yourself for the nomination and you campaign and all in the primaries, you'll, you'll win. That, that's that's been proven. Well, you'll win the nomination. You might not okay. win the presidency, but ah. you'll win the party's nomination. At least. Okay. Okay. Oh, that's sort of a rule of thumb. It's among, never, it's every time a vice pre- sitting vice president has decided to be president, has run for the nomination of the party and for the presidential nomination, they've gotten it. Who, they have not all won. Right. Who, who has decided not to? Who said, you know well, what? Well, lots of EPs just have decided not to run for, they just couldn't, they knew they weren't going to get the votes or the party endorsement and everything. Okay. Almost uh, all of them. <laughs> all, right? So, so not, so it'd be, it'd, it'd be easier, I'm trying to rack my brain, it'd be easier to list the ones who have gotten the nomination than the ones who haven't. Who, who has, uh, tr- do, do me a favor as, as best you can in, in Ooh. some sort of order. Well, I'm of Martin, the ones who did. Well, uh, Martin Van Buren, Andrew Jackson's second vice president. Okay. Uh, he got the nomination and won the presidency. Right. In 1820, I want to say 1826 or 1828 or something like that. Okay. Um, and then I'm trying to think. Was Polk Ooh. ever vice president? No, no. Okay. Um, uh, going, that's Van Buren and then it goes all the way I think it wouldn't, it wouldn't be until, um, God, it wouldn't be until the forties or fifties. I don't even, I'm trying, I'm, I'm racking my brain here. Right. Um, well, uh, then George W. Bush got it. You know, he yeah. was Reagan's vice president, got the nomination and, and won. Right. Um, Lin, uh, Hubert Humphrey was the Democratic, yep. he was the Democratic nominee. Yep. He just lost. Yeah. But he won the party's nomination for president. Yeah. So those are three examples. Van Who's, Buren won and Bush won and, and Humphrey lost. Now I'm gonna, And Al Gore. And Al Gore. He was vice president and yep. he lost. And uh, using you as a trivia book at this point, because uh, now I'm just curious. <laughs> uh, I guess I can't remember. Who was Ulysses S. Grant's vice president? Uh, his first one was uh, Shiler Colfax. Shiler. That's right, because he had the greatest name in the world. Yeah. Shiler Colf- Colfax. Colfax, yeah. What Who do was, you know about him? Uh, well, if you've seen the movie Lincoln... The guy uh, who's I saw Abraham Lincoln at Vampire Hunter. Ah, okay. Different movie entirely. Different movie. If you saw the movie Lincoln, uh, <laughs> you know a lot of it takes place in the House of Representatives about ratifying the constitutional amendment to free the slaves okay. and everything. The guy who's the Speaker of the House in that movie, who's presiding all over the House uh, hearings, that's the character. That's is... Speaker Colfax. Oh, okay. He was the Speaker of the House when Lincoln was president. Okay. And so that's that guy. So when you watch Lincoln, it's that guy. Okay. And uh, he was from I. I want to say he was from Ohio. Okay. Um, and Lincoln called him like a charming rascal, a smiling little intriguer who oh, was plausible wow. and not to be trusted. Fantastic. Yeah. And Colfax met with Lincoln on the day of his assassination. He was like the last meeting the president had was with Colfax, the Speaker of the House. That was his last like official meeting of the day before he left for uh, Ford's Theater. theater. Yes. So Colfax was one of the last people to see Lincoln alive. Wow. And then he was Grant's vice president and he was forced to resign due to like a scandal. He'd taken like some bribes or something like that. Okay. And then he – and again, a Minnesota connection. Uh, Colfax was here in Minnesota. His train broke down and he had to walk about like a quarter of a mile in the snow okay. up in Mankato. Oh, wow. And it killed him. He had a heart attack and died. Well, yeah. You know, you think about uh, – like 
my knee jerk reaction was a quarter of a mile. And then I was like, Oh, it's 1870. Yeah. In the uh, raging snowstorm. In a raging snowstorm. And he was a man Mankato. of like in his sixties. Yeah. And he's in his sixties. He's probably wearing some sort of weirdo boot. Oh yeah. And, uh, and the snow in Minnesota is no uh, joke now. It was a blizzard. It was a, yeah. no, no joke now. It was a blizzard. Uh, yeah. like the train, that's why the train broke down. You right. know, the snow was so bad. It broke down and so he, he had to walk. he just died of exposure He and died heart of exposure failure? and heart failure wow. and, and the cold. It all killed him. Good Lord. Yeah. Okay. So who was, who was the next one? Uh, this is where I get like, this is, uh, Grant it gets had, muddy. Grant had two vice presidents because he had two terms. Colfax was forced to resign and then I think his next one was, God. Oh, it was Henry Wilson who, uh, who, who, who Jason, who Jason liked. It was Henry Wilson because after the Colfax scandal. Yep. Uh, they needed someone squeaky clean. Okay. And Wilson was very squeaky clean. Okay. Um, he'd returned the stock of the credit mobiler scandal that had stirred up, uh, that had forced Colfax and other people to resign and expose them. Right. And, uh, he'd bought it with like some money that had been given to his wife and it was very convoluted, but basically everyone was like, well, it's Henry Wilson who's squeaky clean, who's, Helped fight, who was an abolitionist right. and helped free the slaves and who was a very was, honest, noble man. He was in the war. Uh, was well, he, in he, the war? he wasn't in the war, he was in the Senate. Uh, oh, okay. But he was a very big, strong abolitionist and a very powerful person to push for, uh, he drove Lincoln kind of crazy, kind of bugging him. He would always come and bug him at the White House about freeing the slaves. It, oh. <laughs> Lincoln found him, Lincoln found him very passionate and, and, and inspiring, but at the same right. time, very annoying. Right. But Wilson was who was replaced Colfax because Colfax had been you know, so scandalous. Right. Um, that they brought in Wilson to replace him. And Wilson, like Jason said, very impressive figure. You know, his dad had sold him into indentured servitude. Oh, that's right. He was the Horatio Alger. Yeah. Guy. He was, he was the basis pretty much for Horatio Alger. Right. And Horatio Alger was from his hometown of Natick, Massachusetts. Okay. And the Wilson thing, like Jason touched a lot about Wilson. Wilson's dad named him after a rich man in town to try and imply that he was the bastard son of that rich man, so he could blackmail him. Okay. But it didn't work. Wow. That's what kind of horrible dad Wilson had. Yeah. And dad. then Wilson's dad sold his son into indentured servitude. Right. And then Wilson so that he could go buy a beer, no doubt. Right. His real name was not Henry Wilson; it was Jeremiah Jones Colbath. Okay. Uh, Jeremiah Jones was the rich man who his father tried to blackmail. Ah. And so Henry Wilson was like Henry not Wilson a changed his name to Henry Wilson to right. totally distance himself, himself from his horrible father. Right. And after being an indentured servant, which was basically a white slave, yeah, in this shoe factory. Yep. He learned everything about shoemaking and shoes and running a business and opened his own shoe factory and became mm-hmm. a millionaire. Right. Right. And then he ran for because the Senate. Because he was a white man. Yeah. And, uh, and then he ran for the Senate and, and pushed allowed. for workers' rights yeah. and unionism and for and, and for abolition, for freeing the slaves. Okay. Because he, he was really a noble, inspiring figure. That is very – and then he did not run for president. He died, I think, too, in office or like he died after the Grant administration or near the end of the Grant administration. All right. But he would have he, – he was a very squeaky clean guy. Yeah. Uh, but Colfax <laughs> was not, so. <laughs> right, so, no loss. Colfax. No loss. What, what were the, your, um, who were a couple of your other favorite VPs? Oh, that's a great question. Like, like Aaron, like, like Jason, I'm a big admirer of Aaron Burr, who I think is one of the most fascinating figures in, in all of American history. Yeah, and, and had I, so many admi- admirable attributes. Yeah. It's, and, it, and, and got sucker punched repeatedly. Oh, by, yeah, he's been beaten into the ground by, uh, by, by history. By history. I, I mean, right now ben he's being Franklin beaten in, uh, not Ben Franklin, but he's, been, but, but, but by Hamilton supporters and people right. like that. But I mean, even now, Aaron Burr is taking a beating on Broadway in the Hamilton musical. 
Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, that musical. <laughs> as we speak, as they're we speak, singing some shitty song about Aaron Burr. As we speak, Aaron Burr is getting made to look like a villain on Broadway in Hamilton the Musical. Maybe not an out-and-out villain because uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote the musical and is playing Hamilton in it, you know, he doesn't flat-out make him horrible. Okay. But at the same time, because he thought about playing Burr himself okay. uh, but finally, before he finally decided to play Hamilton. Um, What's but the, at the story same time, about Hamilton? Oh, Hamilton's a dirtbag. Yeah, well, yeah, but at, at the same time, brilliant. I, I don't deny brilliant. it. No, no, no. Uh, the thing is, is, is I have, tell, I have tolerated many a very funny asshole in my life. Yes. So I know that someone who is incredibly smart. Oh, yeah. Smartest guy in the room often. Yeah. Can also be the biggest jack, like Lyndon Johnson. Yeah. Hamilton was, br- was the smartest guy in the room almost every time, yeah. but he was corrupt and, and brutal and brutally and vicious in his politics and, and, and spiteful. And, and, he, and childish and an, in many and, a, ways. and an adulterer and right. uh, all Which, these things. But no doubt a financial genius. Financial genius. Very brave in the Revolutionary War. Um, I'm not a big Hamilton was, supporter, but right, I don't what deny was his, it. What was his war record? I am oh, his war record was the, exceptional. Uh, okay. He was Washington's aide de camp. Oh, really? And then he helped fight at uh, and, and helped win uh, at Yorktown. Oh, wow. He was one of the lead, uh. Like strategist guys? Uh, no, he, he fought in the field at Yorktown. He fought at, why would George Washington's aide de camp fight? He wanted to get out and get some combat experience. He okay. was tired of people saying he was hiding behind the lines. Well, so because, he went out in Yorktown and helped go like do some of the trench warfare. The the because Yorktown was a siege basically. You know, like they yeah. dug in and blew away at, at Cornwallis from the land while the French blew away at him from sea and yeah. and, cap, and, and hemmed him between him. them, and battered yeah. him into submission. Mm-hmm. But Hamilton was part of the. He helped advance on Yorktown and led sorties and attacks and everything okay. like that. I, he might have even gotten into some hand-to-hand combat with his sword uh, huh. during it. I'm not 100% sure. But he had a good war record. Okay. Um, and then he went But to he just com- wanted to make sure that he was – He wanted to make sure he got some military glory. Right, so that he he didn't ever get called on as saying – No, no one he wanted – want he didn't it. want to be called a coward. Right, because he probably wanted to run for office. He, yeah, <laughs> uh, he was as ambitious as Lucifer. There's no yeah. denying it. Yes, yes. And uh, so, what's the play about? The, the Hamilton that? the Musical is based on Ron Chernow's uh, uh, famous biography of Hamilton, probably the definitive best biography ever written of Hamilton. Chernow is a very big detractor of Burr. Okay. He does not think much of Aaron Burr, and so like Manuel Miranda has said, like most Burr books are like you know defensive things about Burr. But if you look at Burr and Hamilton, Burr had just as good a war record, if not better. Yeah. Um, he, his... Burr fought in the invasion of Quebec. Okay. Where he famously, like when, he, when the commanding officer in charge of the attack on the city was blown apart by like grape shot and cannon fire, Burr tried to pick up his body and drag it back oh, wow. from those lines. It was a horrifying battle, the Battle of Quebec. Like it was in the, it was like, I think it was on New Year's Day in the middle of a snowstorm. Good lord. And, uh, yeah, I've first never of all, even heard of that. oh yeah. Well, America. Our Revolutionary War history is not that great. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, one of the strategies of the Continental Congress was to invade Canada. Okay. And so like, um, and I can't remember the general off the top of my head who was in charge of it that, but they invade, they, Benedict Arnold was part of it, Aaron okay. Burr was part of it, and this other general was part of it, and they marched 
through all sorts of horrible forests and everything yeah. from New York or something all the way up to Quebec through forests, through rain. They had to kill dogs and eat them. It was snow. It was nightmarish. Right. Hell, it was like a hell was march. Was that winter that uh, that we all learn about when we're kids? Not like the Valley Forge winter. The Valley Forge it was a winter? couple years before that. Oh, okay. But Burr was at Valley Forge, too. Oh, was he? Yeah. Hamilton and Burr were both at Valley Forge. Oh, okay. Um, uh, they marched all the way to Quebec, and like the day... I think like the next day was when the term of enlistment was up. Okay. So they had to attack. So oh, they attacked. So they had to use all the troops that they, they could. Otherwise, they were all just going to turn around and go home. Oh my god! So they launched the attack. It failed. Um, it came not terrible. It, it didn't fail too awfully. They they <laughs> they got through the outside things of the city, and they were putting. I think they were like. Getting to the point where they're going to put ladders on the walls to try and scale okay, the walls. So they broke through some of the lines. They broke through some lines, but yeah, it was they still lost. Okay, and they had to retreat. And Burr's commanding officer, and I wish I could remember his name because he's a forgotten American hero. Okay, he was blown apart. Mm-hmm. And Burr know, tried to and save Burr tried and famously Burr his... tried to pick up his body and drag it. But Burr was a little kind of guy, and this guy was a big, like over six foot tall, two hundred pound man. Okay, and in the raging snowstorm and being shot at and everything, he couldn't. He couldn't get his body up and drag him all the yeah. way behind the line, so he had to abandon him on the field. Right. There were fa- paintings made of this, and it was a famous incident. Oh, okay. And Burr was like, I think Burr, uh, Burr became a national hero because of it. Okay. Because he fought so bravely at Quebec and tried to save his commanding officers, uh, right, corpse, right. and everything. And so he got appointed to General Washington's staff. Washington didn't trust him exactly. And Burr did not endear himself to it. He didn't want to be on the staff. He wanted to be in the field. Okay. So he became – he was assigned to be General Putnam – Israel Putnam's like second-in-command aide-de-camp. Okay. And he basically – because Putnam was not the brightest of guys, Burr basically ran it. And <laughs> okay. Burr did all sorts of things to run the British out of New York and New Jersey. He led all sorts of raids and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he trained troops at Valley Forge. Okay. Uh, where he supposedly the famous uh, – Arm cutting off incident happened where like some of his men were sick of him ordering them around in the way yeah. he was. So like they were going to have a rebellion against him and he was informed about it. And a guy who was leading the attack said, now is your time, boys, and tried to shoot him. And Burr whirled around with his saber and cut his arm off. Oh, my God. That supposedly happened. That's uh, but it could be There's, anecdotal. Or, it could or, be anecdotal. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's become shrouded in myth. Some right. people say it happened. OK. Uh, some people said it didn't. Like Gore Vidal has it in Burr. Yeah. And I brought it up to him while I was interviewing him. And yeah. He, and, he, and then he went back and said, no, that never happened. And I said, but it's in your book. And he said, no, it's not. He snapped at me. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah, yeah don't argue can't. with Gore Vidal. Right. House. But it, he has it in the book happening. Yeah. But it's disputed. Like some people say it's true. Some yeah. people, it's, it's shrouded it in myth. But it makes for a good story. And but it makes for a hell no of a good story. Right. Yeah. There's no reason for Gore Vidal not to have put it in the book. Right. Because it's fictional. It's right. historical fiction. Yes. And I so, know Gore Vidal probably thinks that he's a historian, but he's a, a He's a novelist. He's a novelist. Yeah. And, and an essayist. Right. Probably the greatest American essayist of all doesn't, time. Doesn't mean that he isn't a good researcher and, oh, no. and, a, and a wonderful, uh, and, and could be, uh, a powerful historian. Oh, he 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 had brilliant. I mean, he was a, he was a historian like in the amateur historian style. Yeah. But this. But did you it, ever read any of Sarah Vowell's stuff? Oh yeah, yeah, I love yeah, Sarah Vowell. Talk about yeah. amateur historians. Yeah. No, I've read Assassination Vacation and Unfamiliar Fishes, of, and yeah, I was I went to a book signing here for her for Unfamiliar Fishes and everything. My my brother last night was telling the story about how he he went to um her hear her speak at uh, at a signing, mm-hmm. and he had recently broken up with his girlfriend, and he was thinking. Maybe she'll like me. And I said, <laughs> you know, I'm in love with her from afar. And I was like, well, 
I'm really glad you didn't get to talk to her. Yeah. And, uh, he said, I got to talk to her. Yeah, I think he got, I think he got her to sign the book, but she I signed like, mine too. Yeah. yeah. He said, I chickened out. I said, good, good, Phil. Good for you. And it was gutsy stuff, my brother. <laughs> and, uh, he's, uh, he's, he's willing to go there. Yeah. And if you, and he's a guy who I asked him last night, by the way, if there was anywhere in the world that he could travel to, you know, uh-huh. like if you could take a trip anywhere, he was like, Oh, Montana and, uh, Canada. And I was like, what? what? You've been to both of those. Yeah. Uh, those are attainable goals. I'm talking about Iceland and cause he. Australia, New Zealand. Go to Middle Earth. The moon. Yeah. Middle Earth. Yeah. Middle Earth. <laughs> He's a Lord of the Rings guy for sure. Yeah. Why wouldn't he want to go to New Zealand and see Middle Earth and right. like go to Hobbiton and, and yeah. all that? Yeah. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. <laughs> and I will ask him about it tonight. Or go to Hogwarts. And go to, oh, don't even. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, really. And I was, but I, he's a big fisherman and he's like, no, I'm going to take my float tube and drive uh, across Canada. And I said, yeah, but you're going to do that. And <laughs> what I'm saying is, yes, go to New Zealand. That's a great, yeah. I, now I can just go to him. I was like, you don't want to go see Hobbiton? Yeah. Because he would. He you would don't want to go see like the actual Pelennor fields and yes. everything? Oh my yes. God. See where Eowyn, you know? Oh, don't you want to see where Eowyn slew the witch king of yes. Angmar? Yeah. He laughed in his You've got to do that. That's I am no man. I am no man. Oh. And, uh, anyway. <laughs> so good. Uh, we, we, I like to weed off around minute fifty. Sure. Uh, into the Lord of the Rings. Why not? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> well, that's cool. Uh, who do you think? Uh, who do you think is going to win the next one? Who do you think presidential run, election? Yeah, and vice um, president. Oh well. Um, who, who are the vice presidential candidates that you think oh, are out there? Oh, there's right now. There's sixteen Republican nominees. Right. So who the hell knows who they're going to choose? And how many, uh, um, they probably won't choose a fellow nominee though, cause like if you saw, you know, Romney chose Ryan who wasn't a candidate. Right. Um, they'll probably pick somebody who's not a nominee, but I mean, just a lateral, it's usually a it's lateral usually, move. Usually right? when like, you pick a VP, you want to pick somebody who won't outshine you. Right. And who's like maybe a younger up and comer. Like, okay. as you yeah. see, like Mitt Romney choosing Paul Ryan, mm-hmm. even H.W. Bush picking freaking Dan Quayle. Right. You know, over Bob Dole or somebody like that. Well, or, what do you know about Dan Quayle? Oh, what don't people know about Dan Quayle? Jesus. I don't know anything about Dan Quayle because oh, I don't like Dan. God. Is he from Indiana? He's from Indiana, the home of the vice presidents. You know, the, Indiana is where more vice presidents come from Indiana. It's the father – it's the mother of vice presidents. It's where the vice presidential museum is. It's where the – They've uh, had the most vice presidents? They've had the most vice presidents, Indiana. Oh, wow. Yeah. Indiana uh, is the home of the vice presidents. Okay. And, uh, Dan so Quayle. So that's where he's from. That's where he's from. That's where the Vice Presidential Museum and Dan does Quayle Indiana Library any, are. Or does Dan, uh, does Indiana have any presidents? I don't. Oh, uh, William Henry Harrison, technically. Okay. Oh. He was born in Virginia, but he was governor of Indiana Territory when he was elected president. Okay. So technically, William, William Henry Harrison. Who was only president for what, 30 31 days? 31 days or something yeah, like that. Something like that, and then died yeah. of cold. Died okay. of cold, yep. Yeah, that's him. Yep. Okay. Uh, Orson Scott Card. Lots of VPs. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but lots of VPs from, uh, Indiana. So Dan Quayle, born and raised in Indiana. Oh yeah, by his rich daddy, you know, kept out of Vietnam by his rich daddy. Oh, that's right. He was one of the National draft Guard. Oh, he was a big draft dodger, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, all the mistakes, all the, you know, the spelling bee potato error, right. the, Argument with Murphy Brown, you know, arguing with a fictional character about her <laughs> illegitimate baby, you know, yeah. just the debacle. And of course, the vice presidential debates and the election of Where did 88. He go to college? You're no Jack Kennedy. Yeah, that you're no Jack Kennedy is famous Lloyd for. Lloyd Benson ripping him apart. Yep. Oh, man. Yeah, or, yeah Lloyd Benson, right. Lloyd Benson. And, uh. Who I was a descendant of Henry Wilson. 
Oh, weird. I think so, yeah. I'm pretty sure about that. Did you read The Wordy Shipmates? I, yes, that's the, oh wait, The Wordy Shipmates? That's Cerevon. No, I'm trying, I I read Unfamiliar Fishes and Assassination Vacation. I haven't read all of Wordy Shipmates. Uh, well that's because it's dense. Ah. Uh, I recommend The Audible. Anyway, uh, I'm calling an Audible on that (laughs) and, uh, listening to Cerevon will read it is much, uh, more interesting, but it's fascinating because there are two founders of Massachusetts, um, who are their descendants, John Kerry and George W. Bush. Wow. And, uh, George W. Bush's, uh, uh, ancestor, uh, whatever, founding mother, mm-hmm. was a woman who was accused of witchcraft and oh went God. to Rhode Island and helped I think found I've heard Rhode of Island. that. Yeah, for religious, you know, she left Rhode Island for, for yeah, religious freedom was, under Roger Williams' yeah, plan she, and everything. Yes. And, uh, and then, uh, John Kerry's, uh, great, 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 great grandfather or whatever was, uh, Bossy Magoo. He was the bossiest of all, uh, uh <laughs> Was that his official name, Bossy Magoo? Bossy Magoo. He was, he was his, it was his puritanical. <laughs> That's a pretty name. puritanical name. It is pretty. <laughs> he was no. the bossiest of all Magoos. Yeah. But he also, he wrote the Sermon on the Rock. He wrote the oh, City on a Rock. City, uh, sh- City on a Shining on a Hill. Hill. Shining City, City on a Hill. Hill. Sermon. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote Famous that. sermon. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. Williams? No, that was Roger Williams. Yeah. Roger Williams founded Rhode Island. I forget who wrote the Shining City on a Hill. Uh, Which thing. I've heard the book at least twice. Can't remember it. I can't uh, remember off the top everybody, of my head. Google it. Sit along Aaron, as opposed to Aaron Burr's grandfather, uh, Jonathan Edwards, who wrote the famous Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God sermon and everything, who founded oh. Princeton University. Right, right. Yeah. I don't remember that. I, I remember reference to that. Oh, it's like you're nothing, like you're nothing more than a loathsome spider held over the flame. Right. It was it super has all this grumpy. hellish imagery in it. Yeah, yeah. It was the grumpiest oh, it's of all a, Christianity. It's a, it's a, oh, it's a very frightening, you know, yeah, yeah. image of hell. You know, you're nothing more than a loathsome spider hanging over the flames of hell. That is what you are to your creator. Wow. And stuff like that. Yeah. Very. That's the, that, that's Jonathan def- Edwards, very powerful Fantastic. Christian imagery. Fantastic. That is the, that is the God that I want to follow. That's oh, the yeah. one I want to believe in. The one that thinks <laughs> I'm a spider over a A flame. loathsome spider. <laughs> Not just any spider. You're a loathsome spider. Exactly. So how, let's talk, uh, by the way, you guys, you should know in your hearts that I'm talking to Matthew Sachs, S-A-X-E, <laughs> and it's at VP Matt Sachs on, uh, the Twitter. And shadowhorsetheater.com, a bunch of links to that, to like a drinking game, Minnesota. Yep. What is that? Oh, it's a, it's a shoot, offshoot of the Los Angeles drinking game show where actors read a uh, film script live on stage and we throw in props and costumes and music and, uh, there's oh, drinking cues for, and- uh, it's classic, you know, 80s and 90s scripts and stuff okay. like that. We did Jaws just in July. Okay. Uh, for and summer movie drinking? season. And there's drinking cues for the actors on stage and for the audience. Shots and beers kind of situation? Uh, shot, well, shots will kill you because uh, yeah. we put in all these cues for it. Beer, is, it's mostly sipping beer and cocktails and stuff like that. And so by the end of it, everybody's happy. Every, by the time, everyone's wasted, yeah. Oh, my God, that's hilarious. If you're not watching it, <laughs> if you're not watching yourself. <laughs> and there's videos of it on YouTube from our shows here in LA, in Minnesota where we've had, like, we did Back to the Future and we had Harry Waters Jr. who played your cousin Marvin Barry in our show. Okay. We did Fargo and we had uh, the whore, the actress who played the whore that Steve Buscemi is having sex with mm-hmm. uh, when he gets attacked. Okay. Uh, who runs down the hallway naked she, and everything. She was in she it. Was in it. Uh, well, yeah. It's a really fun time. Those are really fun. I love those kinds of shows with, oh, it's a with blast. scripts and stuff. There was a guy, and I am spacing his name, even though he gave me an XLR cable, Rangers. He gave me an XLR cable. <laughs> uh, he wrote Imaginary Episodes. Uh, it's a podcast, short, short-lived. short I think he did maybe 15 episodes. Okay. And what he would do is he would write new scripts for old sitcoms. Oh, 
And I did Married with Children and Golden Girls. Oh. And those were two that I did. I was it's like writing a spec script almost. It's like writing a spec script, but, and they're, and they were prob- they were truncated a little bit. They were, they, they were shorter. Sure. But, um, I always wanted them to write a Barney Miller episode, <laughs> but he had never seen Barney Miller. Oh. And I was like, well, you're missing out because it's one of the greatest sitcoms ever made. It's an underrated forgotten sitcom. It is on uh, this TV all the time. Uh, I don't know. I, we don't have cable. We have a, a rabbit ear. Sure. So, um, but I have to say that uh, people should definitely, if they get a chance uh, in Minnesota, go to the Shadow Horse Theater. Yes, please. And uh, and come and see. You also have a an improv troupe. Yes. Called Last Action Movie. Last Action Movie. Yeah. Is the name of the troupe. Yes. And, and we've toured. We've done the Chicago Improv Festival and the Spontaneous Combustion Festival in Atlanta. So sometimes you can see us out of town, but mostly we're based here. Matt, this has been fascinating. Thank you. Jason Klom, thank you so much for saying thank you should you, have Matt on. I made a Pez dispenser out of Legos. <laughs> anyway, and I said Legos plural and it's Lego singular. Oh. So thanks a lot. It is important. So Matt, thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you. It's been awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rangers, for listening out there and uh be nice to each other. You you know the rules. Take care. Bye. My hat, my hat, my hat. They're dancing around my hat, my hat, my hat, my hat. Well, what do you think of that? If it looks like a Mexican hat dance and it sounds like a Mexican hat dance, it's most likely a Mexican hat dance. So take off your hat and let's dance. Yay! Oh, my God. We, why don't we just call that as the end of the show?